Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Greetings, fellow time travelers. As always, it's lovely to have you with me for another part of the endless journey through space and time. Before we get started on today's episode, Big thank you to the people who show their support for the podcast series that Paul and I make by signing up to my Patreon.com site. Uh, It's the finances from Patreon.com that make the free podcasts, the love letters to the British Isles and the world possible. If you're already a member, if you're already part of the family, thank you. If you're not and you'd like to become a member, then go to Patreon.com, look for me by name and sign up and it would be great to have you. You get access to everything we do, which is question and answers, vodcasts, ranty monologues, (laughs) sometimes thoughtful monologues, competitions and all sorts of chat and exchange of ideas. The Patreon family, it's a great bunch, it's a great community of like-minded, curious, questioning types, so come and and be part of it. Okay, that's the advert over, now it's time to strap yourselves into the time machine as we set off on the next stop on my love letter to the world. Recorder, microphone, action. perilous voyage into the unknown, one of the last great journeys of discovery undertaken by our species Homo sapiens. By watching birds, reading their flight patterns and drawing the right conclusions, a group of intrepid explorers set off into the vastness of the Pacific Ocean, eventually encountering Aotearoa, the land of the long white cloud, and thereby completing the human settlement of the world. Endeavouring to understand history in hopes of illuminating the future, I'm Neil Oliver, and this is my love letter to the world. Hi Neil. In the last episode, you took us to Mongolia to meet the mighty Genghis Khan, the man who built one of the largest land empires the world has ever seen. Where are we this week? Morning, Paul. Well, this week we're travelling from land to sea, Uh, leaving Genghis Khan's huge empire behind and sailing instead into the middle of the vast, vast Pacific Ocean. I don't have an exact date, no one does, but we're here sometime around the middle of the 13th century. You can take 1250 as a toehold, if you like. And we're climbing aboard a double-hulled canoe and setting sail with a legendary explorer called Kupi and his brave people as we head towards Aotearoa. I feel particularly warmly disposed towards this story. It, it's all about Aotearoa, which is the land of the long white cloud, which is New Zealand. And recent events in New Zealand notwithstanding, i.e. the tyranny of Jacinda Ardern, <laughs> which is about to come to an end because she stepped down, but that apart, uh, I, I love New Zealand. My family, Trudy and the, the, the three kids, we were all able to go out there a few times 
in the years between sort of 2014 2018 we spent months out there and it was just the best it was the best trip any of us ever did so it's all bound up with all sorts of fantastic memories about you know obviously they filmed a lot of the rings in, in in locations in New Zealand and at the time and actually still to this day my kids are quite obsessed with Tolkien and and the Lord of the Rings and it's all just a place of of happy memories and and also I do love thinking about it because since it's at the other end of the world when it's cold up here like it is today <laughs> you know it's, it's a place of, of warmth and sunshine that I go to in my imagination and that name the land of the long white cloud did did you get sense of that when you were there? Well, you, you do. Uh, especially, you really need to appreciate it in that sense. You need to see New Zealand from the sea. Uh, if you if you're out on the water, you know, a few miles offshore, which I had the opportunity to do all the time because I was I was down there filming Coast New Zealand for the television service. It's it's version of the BBC, and I was often out on boats. And because of the it's it's a combination of the topography. Of the you know that there's mountain ranges and, and so on, really spectacular mountain ranges in, in parts of New Zealand, and that with the with the weather systems that that blow and the clouds that form, you quite often get the situation where it's like icing on top of a very thin cake. A, a long white cloud forms on top of of the landmass. It's just a meteorological climatic phenomenon, and it was actually I mean we'll we'll get into it, but the, the story we're going to tell today talk about is is Kupi. He was a, a, a mythical figure, part legend, part reality, lost in the mists of time. And he, he travelled with his wife Kura Moratini. Obviously she went with him and it was it's she, uh, Kura Moratini, who is credited with describing the place, naming the place Aotearoa, the the land of the long white cloud. It was her idea, her description of what she saw. And actually it's that coming together of myth and fact, myth and truth that absolutely preoccupies me. Interestingly, I suppose, because I've already mentioned J.R.R. Tolkien and the Lord of the Rings and so on, but as well as the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit and the Silmarillion, Tolkien, he was a, he was a devout Catholic and he was very strongly motivated by the idea that the storytelling that he did, actually he preferred to call it myth-making and, and and he also thought that it was an act of what he called sub-creation, that in his thinking, because we come from God, we are God's creation, and we are always, almost helplessly, as he described it, trying to find our way back to God, which is also the Logos, the truth. And it's, in, it's we're almost like in the dark or blind or in some way we can't see and so we're trying to feel sense our way back to the truth and in the in the process of doing that we create myth makers create versions of reality where god created the universe and the and the world it's an act of sub-creation to invent a place like middle earth it's part of the process of of trying to get closer and closer to the truth and i, I love that i love that idea uh, that within myth there is the truth and you know that somewhere within that cloud of uncertainty and myth you find fact. So we've got a location, New Zealand, Aotearoa. But in terms of time, it's it's very difficult to pin Coupe down in any way. 
and therefore it's difficult to pin them down in time. But for the sake of it, let's say the middle of the 13th century, let's say 1250. We'll get to Kupi, but first of all, it's important to think about the way in which our species, Homo sapiens, has always been interested to the point of obsession in birds and the power of flight. From Icarus and the rest, people have dreamt of emulating the flight of birds. And that came in the first place simply the hunters, way back in the depths of time, watching birds. And in in due course, of that leads all the way to flight, then powered flight. And then within a lifetime of the first powered flight, rockets bound for the moon. And it all comes, the inspiration from all of that comes from watching birds. I make no apologies for mentioning yet again in this context the Vedbeck mother and baby. That's the Mesolithic cemetery in Vedbeck, which is in Denmark. Uh, and it's a 7,000-year-old cemetery. And, and in one of the graves, a, a young mother and an infant, a newborn, were found buried together, having died in childbirth. And the, and the baby was laid down on a swan's wing, which is a couple of things. It's, it's someone putting a comforter, perhaps, in the ground for the baby to lie on. But it also might be an acknowledgement of, of the flight of migratory birds that leave and return. There might have been a hope invested there that in the same way that migratory birds like swans leave when the time comes and then return when the time comes, there might have been a hope that by associating the mother and baby with a swan that their spirits might, having left, also return when the time was right. So that's 7,000 years ago, which is probably only just scratching the surface of the deep time but people paying attention in that way to what birds were doing in the sky. So, that moves us on to thinking about great journeys. The kind of journeys that are inspired by watching birds come and go. So, if you think about, we've, we've touched on the, the Vikings many times in the love letter to the world. Well, the Vikings, amongst other things, they pioneered the great journeys across the Atlantic across the North Atlantic. We know they did that. They came out of Scandinavia. Obviously, they came to Britain, but they also went across Iceland, Greenland, and then all the way to North America. So they were the great pioneers of those voyages. Well, the great pioneering journeys in relation to the South Pacific, at the other end of the world, were undertaken by Polynesians. Polynesia means many islands. And the, and the populations who were on those islands, you know, scattered across the vastness of the Pacific. If you look at a map or a satellite image of the, of the Pacific and you see these tiny dots of dry land scattered across it like, like blown leaves. It's a mind-blowing territory to contemplate if you were interested in getting from one to the other. At the time when these places were colonised, you have to wonder how it was done. No GPS, no none of that tech. But these people were able to find their way to and from these islands, back and forth across trackless ocean. They weren't just going at random. They could find their way to, to these places. And, it, and it's an extraordinary accomplishment. It's beyond dispute that those mariners of the South Pacific were almost superhuman. You know, all the stuff of Thor Heyerdahl and the Kontiki and the journeys that he made 
that he worked out how to make these boats of ancient design and then he, he sailed them across the Pacific Ocean to, to prove that it was possible. And it was balsa that he was that he was using, which is a soft wood. The pieces of, were bound together with twine. And he, he hadn't even known it would happen, but, but because he intuited from ancient wisdom how to build one of these ships. For example, when they got into the water, the seawater made the twine contract. So the sea voyage actually made his uh, his contiki better, more uh, seaworthy by the end of his journey than it had been at the beginning. And that discovery underlined to him that he had got it right. And the, the mariners of the South Pacific were just uh, extraordinary. They had these double-hulled canoes, right? So they would have a, an enormous dugout canoe, you know, cut out, you know, a, ho- a hollowed tree trunk, dug out with adzes to create the, the space. But they would have two together, joined by a raft platform, like riggers, and then a, a, a platform on top and a mast and sails. And, you know, there was accommodation on board for many, many people. They were great ocean-going vessels and when it came to finding their way across the Pacific there were wayfinders there'd be a wayfinder on each vessel and the wayfinders were trained from childhood to be navigators and it began with them sitting in, in, a, in a rock pool when the tide was in and as the tide went out and dropped they would feel literally physiologically the pool of the ocean so they, they built up a, a kind of a muscle memory of what the tide was doing as it dropped and it pulled away from them and then came back in. So this was happening to toddlers to instill in them this sense of what the ocean did or, or, or the beginning of understanding that. They then learned a technique called dead reckoning, which is basically, it's about uh, knowing where you are in the otherwise empty ocean by remembering where you've been. So they're looking up at the sky, especially at night. I mean, they're doing some of it in relation to the movement of the sun, but at night they're seeing themselves in relation to the cosmos. And the central to the technique was imagining that the vessel, they and the vessel were stationary and that it was the cosmos that was moving. That's how they conceptualised and understood where they were. And they could do the most incredible things. They would listen to the, to the beat of wave patterns against the hull of the canoes. And they would listen out for familiar rhythms. And those rhythms worked like fingerprints on the surface of the ocean. Because they knew that a, a, an island that they were looking for was creating... A wave pattern, you know, because the sea was coming around an island way out in the distance and it was shaping a waveform, a recurring wave pattern, and they would listen to the sound of the waves and they could rec- they could identify the necessary wave pattern that would that would lead them to the island that they were looking for. The wayfinders could think their way from one island to another, watching the patterns, the sort of cat's paw. Uh, disturbances on the surface of the sea would would tell them that they were in relation to and getting closer to some or other landmass or some or other reef. It was an extraordinary accomplishment, and it was written about by the ancients, and then it was it was relearned by the likes of Tor Heyerdahl 
and they be, they became aware of of just what it was that these that these Polynesian navigators were capable of. It was almost superhuman what they were doing. So, against that context, Coupe, K U P E, is a kind of a patriarch of New Zealand. He's a patriarch of of Polynesia. Many many of the scattered populations they they believe themselves descended from Coupe, and the truth of him is all tied up, all lost in the mists of myth. It was almost certainly a real person, but there are so many, there are multiple versions of what he did. A bit like Robin Hood or Batman. <laughs> you know, there are so many stories that describe where he came from and, and how he was able to do what he did. Very difficult, but it's simply fascinating and fun to read into some of the stories about Coupe. It's believed that he originated from an island called, well, it's known as Hawaii, not Hawaii, Hawaii. That's the home island for, say, the Maori people of New Zealand. They, they believe that they come from Kupe, who came in his own part from the island of Hawaii. And now no one knows which island in a northern, eastern Pacific Polynesia is or was Hawaii. Even that's been lost. But that's where they understand that they came from. And the Maori believe that in death, their spirits return to Hawaii. So it's a bit like Arthur and Avalon, Kupe and Hawaii. It's that kind of myth, that kind of legend. So around the middle of the 13th century, on, on Hawaii, somewhere in the, in the more northerly eastern part of the South Pacific, he became aware of the flight of a species of bird called, well, they called them kuaka, K-U-A-K-A. We call them godwits. And the, the migratory practices of the godwits are, are known and are legendary. These tiny little birds, every year they fly from Siberia to New Zealand and back. <laughs> That's their, God knows why, that's their migratory pattern. And to do it, they do the most extraordinary thing. In the, in the weeks building up to them leaving Siberia to fly south to, to New Zealand, in preparation for this migratory flight, they, they feed so that their muscles are strong. But, but somehow or other, they're also able to divert blood supply from their extremities to their wing muscles. Because for the next number of days, they fly non-stop from Siberia to New Zealand. It's the longest sustained flight of any migratory birds on the planet. And they're only little. You know, they're, they're, they're this size. okay. But they undertake this unbelievable journey for which their bodies are uniquely physiologically tuned or attuned. So, on, on Hawaii, in 1250, Coupe notices that every year these flights of birds, and they, they turn the sky dark. It's like, in the, it's tens of thousands of these birds that all fly in these great flocks, impulses of these flocks that come overhead, like starlings. But they never land. Kupe and the people of Hawaii were fascinated by the fact that these birds never landed. And there's these, there's these great lines, forgive the butchered Maori, but they say, Kuakite. Te Koanga Kuaka, which means who has seen the nest of the Kuaka? You know, they, they, where, they, where do they settle? Nobody knew. And they also said, Kuai Kakite Ite Hua Ote Kuaka, who has ever held the egg of the Kuaka? 
right? And these were hunters. These were people attuned in the way that hunters are to what animals are doing. And they might have wanted the eggs of the quacka. They might have wanted to hunt the quacka because they were so numerous, but they never landed. And so it's Coupe who is credited with realising, obviously many people at different times would have realised the same thing, but it all goes to Coupe. He, he realised that if they weren't landing, all these tens of thousands of birds, hundreds of thousands of birds, they were going somewhere. Where? Because on these small islands of Polynesia, the, the great premium was placed on fertile land for growing the food stuff upon which their, their lives depended, which was the, the kumara, which is the sweet potato. That's what they grew in the meat. They grew other things and they ate other things, but they, they, a large part of their subsistence was based on growing the sweet potato, the kumara. Their population was building and growing, and, you know, as, they, as more sons and daughters were born, they all need their own farmland, so there was always a pressure to find more fertile land. So Coupe watches these birds and thinks they're going somewhere, and the chances are that when they get there, they're eating something, which means that something's growing. Let's go there. Let's follow the quacka, and that we'll find more land where we can grow the kumara. Right? So that, that's the thinking. And sure enough, off they go. So with uh, Kuramarutini and the others of his followers, in, in this context, it, it makes me think of the likes of Abraham, the Old Testament prophet, the first of the first, who in a time of, or for whatever reason, he upped sticks with all of his followers. He was obviously a, he was obviously a significant man, in his part of the world. And he, he led all these people to Canaan. <laughs> you know, he led them into the promised land. And then in a time of famine, people went off into Egypt and the whole of the Old Testament starts to unfold. But Coupe is a bit like that. He's a great leader of people, able to get people to follow him. And him and his wife, Kuramoratini, they build and get aboard their great double-hulled canoe called Matahorua. Matahorua. And off they go. And so the great journey begins. They have to sail to follow the quacka. The, the quacka come from the north and east and they go over Hawaii to the south and west. And sailing into the southwest from Hawaii was difficult because it, for most of the time, most of the year, there were strong headwinds coming out of the southwest. So you'd be sailing into the wind, which is a nightmare. And it was also a time of when the sea would be cold and quite stormy. So for most of the year, the, the opportunity to go into the southwest at all was limited and difficult. Except the other thing that Coupe noticed was the time when the quacka were going southwest was when everything shifted and a, a low pressure system would every year settle over the South Pacific. And it meant that for a time, for a, a relatively brief window, there were useful winds coming out of the northeast, i.e. from their backs, filling their sails to take them in the same direction that the quacka were going. Interestingly, when it comes to thinking about the double-hulled canoes that you had to dig out with, a, with an adze, that's like an axe, but with the blade turned through 45 degrees, so that it's like a scoop, and you scoop out the wood to, to create the hollow. And when, when Coupe was talking to his followers, he described how the flight of the quacka was as numerous as the flakes of of wood, the chips of wood that were flying out and, a, and behind when a, when a craftsman, when a shipbuilder was building the dugout canoes. You know, so the whole thing is all bound together into one fantastic, perfect, symmetrical story. 
It must have been terrifying, though, setting off into the vast ocean. Well, yeah, well, well. It begs the question: how they, by that point they had the people were all over the South Pacific. They had moved across uh, Easter Island and all of the rest of it. The human footprints had had reached everywhere by that point. It's twelve fifty. I mean, remember that that's that's thirty odd years after Magna Carta, <laughs> back in Runnymede Green by the Thames in London. It's at that sort of time in history. It's late in the day. So the great pioneering journeys have already been completed. So yes, it would always be, it would be unnerving to start another new one. But they had the skills. They had the wayfinders who were able to navigate and work in relation to places they already knew about. But for sure, it would have been a, it would have been a challenge. It would have been a, an, an unbelievable undertaking. But off they went. And it took weeks of, of journey, so they f- they fill the boat with they fill the, the 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 canoe with with all the stuff that they need, and they go off into it, and they go off into you know with, they have to take water with them, obviously fresh drinking water and so on and so on, but they do it. They follow the quaka, uh, and the, the quaka fly even by night, overhead. They're still up there singing, doing their chirruping and tweeting as they go. And so even at night, they were able to you know navigate by where the where the quaka were going. They called the Pacific Moana. Everyone will know Moana from the whatever it is, the Pixar cartoon about the wee girl. That's all about Maui and 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 all the rest of it. And so they called the Pacific Moana Nui Akiwa. Is the is the Maori? It's such a fantastic language. Everything they say sounds like a snatch of song. It's it's an amazing lyrical language. And they found their way until eventually Kura Moratini, Kupe's wife looks out and they're lying low quite flat strung out on the horizon with a white cloud on top of it there it was land and she called it Aotearoa the land of the long white cloud in all likelihood given where they were coming from they probably all certainly found the North Island of the two because New Zealand is composed of North Island and South Island they probably saw North Island first and the Maori name for, for North Island means the great fish of Maui in the Maori legend, South Island is Maui. He's another great Maori hero, mythical figure. He was out fishing one day and he used a hook made from his grandmother's jawbone. Yeah, you heard me right, his grandmother's jawbone. And he, he cast it out on his line and he pulled up from the from the ocean depths a great ray, like a manta ray, and that became North Island. And his canoe became... South Island, and if you look at them from above, the South Island is of long and more canoe-like, and North Island is a bit like that sort of kite shape of a of a manta ray. So, anyway, the North Island is is the great fish of Maui, and here's the kicker: it, it's undoubted that New Zealand was the last considerable landmass that was ever settled by our species. <laughs> everywhere else that's settled now had already been settled by that point. Every, everywhere. So there was no humans on it at that stage. Well, that's I, 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 that is a that is the that is the that is the the legend. It had, well, the point is because of where it sits in the Pacific, somebody had to find it for the first time sometime. You know, after all the great geological upheavals and the ice ages and all of the rest of it, it would have been it would have been tabula rasa. It would have been a blank slate at some point. Someone had to find it. 
and the balance of probability is that it was it was in the, it was sometime around the 13th century and it was polynesian people that found it and that all of that has been distilled down now into this legend that gives us Kupe following the Kuaka with his wife and finding Aotearoa, the land of the long white cloud. And so it was in that moment that the last previously unsettled land felt the footprints of our species. Kublai Khan's powerful shadow stretches from China to modern-day Hungary and the Siberian coast. The last of the great Mongol Khans arrogant, proud and driven to dominate any and all. In 1281 he launches a massive invasion force against Japan, 4,000 warships and 140,000 soldiers. Hopelessly outnumbered, the Japanese forces are facing certain death when a sudden typhoon rears its terrifying head, kamikaze, a divine wind. Next time in my love letter to the world. To help support this podcast and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment vodcasts every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. I'd love to see you there. Check out the Instagram account called Neil Oliver Love Letter. My YouTube channel is simply called The Neil Oliver Channel. And to build this podcast, tell your friends about it. Get them listening and write a review to convince the online crowd to come and join us. For further reading about these moments in time, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the World in a Hundred Moments and it's brilliant and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the World is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Catnip Inc. The music's composed by Milo McKinnon. The social media and YouTube producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is undertaken by Evie, Lucy and Archie and Teddy. Finance is taken care of by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is the work of Althorpe Studios and the graphics are down to Paul Plowman. Thanks for listening. This has been a Catnip Inc. Podcasts production. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Market.